You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. just prior to Christmas and due to popular demand we've got him back because we know he had such an interesting story of his time away with his mates and on his own traveling around the world but I know there's a few other stories that Peter can tell. So Peter welcome back to the island nice for you to paddle out again. Yeah the, the view from the island's looking great Tony thanks. So as I said very rare for guests to come back for, a, for another swim and um, as I say to paddle out to to the island. Tell us today, what's another story or another thing that's happened in your life that you think our listeners would be very interested in? In the first session, Tony, we looked at, I guess, a, a fair bit of what I did and the travelling around. One of the things I mentioned in that was that the initial catalyst, in a way, was my friend Derek's romance breaking up. Tap, he, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'm going to travel the world, do you want to come? And that started a lot of the travel back in early 1978. What I didn't get into last time was that there were some other factors in the background as well. And were they personal factors? They were personal factors, yeah. I, I was born into a family that was, I was really the sixth generation in a relatively obscure offshoot of Mormonism. And that was a thing in Australia back then? Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, I mean, most people in Australia would have bumped into the Mormons in one way or another. Uh, probably at their front door, but I was in an offshoot, which was a bit different, had some beliefs in common, but differed from the mainstream and uh, gets a bit esoteric there. So we might touch on some of that on the way through, but that was another factor playing in the background. And you were active in that church or in, in, in that religion in Perth before you went away or as a child? I was, yeah. So born in that, grew up in that. Um, my grandfather had been a pastor my mum was the church organist for 32 years. When she remarried, my stepfather became a pastor. All my cousins were involved. So it was a very immersive experience, a very family experience. So how did that play? Okay, so what happened is because I knew I really wanted to investigate something before I committed to it, I guess there's always been a bit of a, a historian bubbling away in the background. 
in that particular religion, what happens is that the pastor of the church might tap you on the shoulder one day and say, Peter, I think God is calling you to dot, dot, dot. And that would be an office in the church. It could be, could be a, a priest or a teacher or an elder or something. Now, you can say no, but I knew I wasn't ready for the tap on my shoulder. Now, my stepfather was the, the pastor of the church, so the tap didn't have to come from very far away. But I was in my late teens, early 20s, living a lifestyle that wasn't actually conformed with that particular Mormon archetype. That probably bought me a bit of a breathing space from the tap on the shoulder, but I knew it was going to come because some of my cousins who were younger than me were getting that tap on the shoulder. And I was a bit scared of it. So, and this was right around the time when you did your first trip. Mm-hmm. So not only was Derek's influence of, of going away and because he had a little bit of cash after not going ahead with his marriage. Yep. But also from your point of view, there was a sense of convenience in that by the sounds and mm-hmm. that it, it meant that you were able to uh, not deal with what was likely to be happening. Mm. So it gave me a chance, yes, to run away from what might have been a looming commitment. But I also saw an opportunity in that because I didn't know, uh, apart from the first part of the trip, which we'd planned, as you know, to go overland from Kathmandu to London, I thought somehow maybe down the track we can get to America. And, of course, that's where Mormonism began. We're talking 1977, 78, so long before internets. uh, If you wanted to research something historical, you had to go to where those documents were. And whereas the mainstream Mormons are headquartered in, uh, in Utah, in Salt Lake City, our group was headquartered in Missouri. So in my background, in my mind at the time, I was thinking, maybe I'll get there and I'll get hold of some of those documents. And then down the track, I can make up my own mind. So Max's Island is a secular island. So we don't mm. know about much about this stuff here. Okay. Um, you know, our life's built around lazing on the beach and and uh, just having a good time. Mm. So tell me what was so unique about this offshoot of Mormonism or was there anything particularly unique that sort of sets the scene as to the intensity that you may have felt you were under? Okay, so I'll try to make this as short as possible. And to answer that question properly, I have to start, I think, with saying a little bit about the mainstream of Mormonism. So mainstream Mormonism felt that all the other Christian religions were basically wrong that God had shown that to Joseph Smith, this American guy in around 1820s, and had told him to start his own church. And that God had also shown him these supposedly hidden golden plates that he translated the Book of Mormon from. Now, he then went on to develop that church, the Mormon church as it's popularly known, or more formally, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it really became a you know, a modern American religious phenomenon. In his later years, he developed some very different theological ideas, and this is where my offshoot differed. So there are three key ideas that were very, very distinctive that separate Mormonism from anything else that looks like Christianity. One was that something called baptism for the dead, um, I, can, I can go into these if you want me to. <laughs> no, that's quite and right. another, another one was called, and this is what people do know about Mormons, apart from the fact they wear black badges and look young and knock on your door, is something to do with more wives than one. And so the whole idea of polygamy or celestial marriage came into it. And the third one 
was the idea that if you were a faithful Mormon and a bloke, uh, you could eventually become a god ruling and reigning over your own planet. Wow, the top shelf. Yeah. So in other words, um, just to caricature this a little bit, I think Mormons would be a lot more successful in secular places like Max's Island if when they knocked on the door, they said, if you join us, and you'd have to be a bloke answering the door, by the way, if you join us, you could be a god ruling and reigning over your own planet, having sex eternally to populate your planet with an, an innumerable number of wives who are incredibly attractive. Would you like to join us? They oh, might have a few. Be, you'd be knocked over in the rush. Yeah, but that apparently is not the evangelistic strategy they use. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to answer the question, the group that I belong to basically believed that those three key distinctive Mormon doctrines of baptism for the dead, plurality of marriage, polygamy, and becoming a god had in fact been in, invented by Joseph Smith's successor, a guy called Brigham Young, and not by Joseph himself. And that was really the main difference, or three differences, if you like, between the two groups. And in Perth, you said you were you know, a smallish group compared to the mainstream Mormons that were in Perth at the time. What mm. sort of, are we talking 10%, 15%? Figures are a bit hard because I didn't know what the mainstream Mormons were at the time, um, but I would have said that they would have been probably 10 to 50 times bigger. And now the group that um, I belong to has almost completely disappeared. Disappeared just in Perth or worldwide? Actually pretty close to both from what I can tell. They're in financial strife and they're having to sell a lot of valuable possessions to actually stay afloat. So you felt like there was the shadow of a tap on the shoulder mm. hovering over you, you went away. Mm. When you were away for that 20 months, did you think mm. much about it? I did. And, in fact, in the second year of that 20 months of the first trip, uh, I did get to Independence, Missouri, and I did get to the archives and photocopied a heck of a lot of stuff and then obviously met the archivist when I returned to Perth after that 20-month trip. I had an opportunity to start researching and sit down with those materials. And what were you, what were you looking for? Well, call me naive uh, if you want, but al although my lifestyle and those of you who've read the book um, or know. Heard, or heard the podcast. Or heard the podcast, although the podcast was somewhat censored, <laughs> uh, will know that my life actually did take a bit of a different direction and certainly not fitting the you know, clean-cut Mormon offshoot boyhood that I had. But nevertheless, I still believed that it was probably all true. And I guess, you know, I had six generations of that flowing through my DNA and all my family was in it. I, I really thought that I would corroborate what my whole family believed in. But when I sat down started looking at some of this stuff uh, a few weeks into it, I realised that there were some major problems and I couldn't believe in it. And so that was when you got back? That or, was when or, I got back. Not, not, a, not when you were in Missouri? No. I started reading some of the material in Missouri, but I, I really didn't start investigating it seriously until I got back to Perth. In I got back, I think, uh, December 79. So it was really early 1980 that I started getting stuck into it. So when you had the inkling that things were perhaps different to what you mm. had previously believed, mm. what did you do? Well, that was a, a, a watershed moment. 
firstly, I realised that I couldn't believe it, so I couldn't really stay a member of the church. The other thing I so realised... who did you tell that at that point? Well, initially my, my family. Um, so my mum, who'd been in it all her life, my, my grandmother, we started having lots of conversations about this. And I realised, though, that because I'd had the privilege of this 19th century material that nobody in Western Australia had, very few people in Australia would have had access to it in these pre-internet Neolithic days. <laughs> and I thought, well, I, I have a responsibility to do something about this and I should write this. So I wrote what became the first book that I've, I've written, which was had a, didn't really have a very positive title. The f- main part of the title was Reasons for Disbelief, a survey of the historical and theological beliefs of the Reorganised Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, and that book, I, I, wor- I had a full-time job, but I was working nights, working weekends, and it became look, a lot of the a lot of the stuff was not original, been discovered by other people, but some of the stuff was original, and in the end, produced about an eighty-page booklet, and ran off a couple of dozen copies. And how old were you at that stage? Well, um, I would have been twenty-three. And in writing the book, did you did you highlight the differences in a in a way that was very dramatic, or in a in a defensive way? I don't think I did it either. I think it was a bit of a middle course and I, because I was writing for people whose journey had been substantially the same as mine and I, I was obviously pretty empathetic for that position. I'd lived it and I knew they hadn't had the opportunity to see. So I, I guess I was optimistic that if people could see what I'd seen, then probably they would come to a similar conclusion. And this was obviously one of the first of its kind, of some, someone within to be writing against the, the basic tenets of, of the religion? It was. I mean, people had done that within the mainstream Mormon church, but because my church was so small, very few people uh, had done something like that from my group. So I guess there's two questions. One, how was it accepted in the church and how was it accepted in your family? Okay. Uh, well... Interestingly, I, we only printed off two dozen copies because I'd only ever seen it having a very local audience. So it was, there was a varied reception within my family. Interestingly, what I did was, although I didn't believe in the church anymore, I kept going very regularly. And the reason for that was, once I knew the book was out there, I thought people would want to challenge me and they'd say, show me where you got this from. You know, I want to see some evidence. And then I'd say, yeah, sure, come back to my place and I'll show you the evidence. I had the full gamut. I had some people I knew were disgusted with me. Um, I heard on the grapevine. Some of my closest family members, my maternal grandfather, got a few pages in and couldn't read it any further. My, my grandmother, my mother, my stepdad all, all read it. And there were lots of lively discussions and a lot of the Younger people around my age, as I was at the time in, in early 20s, uh, again, became a lively topic of conversation. What I hadn't been prepared for, uh, and what she certainly didn't ask my permission to do, was my mother sent a copy of the book over to the First Presidency of the Church in America, uh, basically with a please explain letter. <laughs> so how did they uh, take it? Uh, pretty much as I, I would expect. I, I was shocked my mother had done that but without mentioning it to me but anyway 
So that instigated a correspondence between myself and a guy called Richard Howard, who was the church historian at the time. So um, as I write in my book, you know, in in one corner, you've got this seasoned historian with a PhD. In another corner, you've got this kid just out of nappies with a Bachelor of Art in English Literature, you know, a bit of an uneven contest. And, you know, look, he took um, question about some of my methodologies and things like that. But at the end of the day, what started to emerge from our correspondence was the fact that he wasn't really challenging the central facts that have been germane to my decision. Uh, And so I asked him in correspondence, I said, look, why don't you guys just publish all this stuff uh, in, in the magazine, the church magazine? Um, you know these historical events. And he said, oh, well, basically the, the correspondence came back. Well, we've actually got, we, we think that might be a bit damaging. We've got a long-term plan to change the thinking of the people in the church. So they, they really did want to change. So some of the things that you challenged them, they were fully aware of and, and needed to have a new narrative around it. Uh, absolutely. And they knew that it was very difficult because basically if they accepted the things that were really part of the, the historical record, it brought the offshoot they were in closer to the mainstream Mormon position and would have been interpreted by most of their people as uh, really a, a complete reversal of everything they'd ever believed in. So you've created an environment with family, friends, the church locally and now mm. the church internationally. Did it end there? In some ways it did. Uh, I mean, obviously there are ongoing repercussions as people work through materials. Some people left the church, uh, and not just because of my book, they left for a variety of other reasons. But it did come to a point where I stopped going, and but I, I was still left with, although I'd had to walk away from that set of beliefs, I still thought, well, that this church I've grown up in has spent a lot of time criticising all other churches. I, I don't know if they're right or wrong, and I don't know much about this Jesus bloke, really. You know, maybe I should check that out at some point. So I was left really with a vague belief in God, God, but not really much else. Obviously, then you're, you know, you'd been brought up for all your life from a spiritual point of view, um, certainly interacting with people on a spiritual level. You must have then taken that now interest that you you had in, in God and Jesus how did that play out over the next, you know, five or ten years yeah. for you at that time? Well, I mean, during my, my literature degree, I'd read, read widely. I'd had to read philosophy. I knew, you know, the other currents of thought that were around in the contemporary scene. And I was, you know, I was prepared to consider all of them, had looked at all of them, you know, existentialism, whatever. Uh, but I, I still felt there was a certain logic to the fact that there might be some sort of creator out there. And the historian part of me wanted to go back to sources. That's, and I started to appreciate history because I realised that it was my interest in history that had really facilitated me investigating and then leaving the reorganised church. But back to the travel journey for, for a minute. So wrote the book in the public service again and all three of us who travelled together were back in Perth. Then we go pro- gold prospecting for a while just to break the monotony of work, but we all quit our jobs. And so on the gold fields, um, I just make the decision, okay, I'm going to do some long distance walking by myself, which we touched on in the last podcast. And so in the middle of 1981, I'm on a plane and to London and then spend the next three months walking around Ireland by myself. 
and and reading your book, yes, that was a really interesting part of it. Interesting couple of chapters because the you did it without hitchhiking predominantly, mm-hmm. and without paid bus trips and, yep. and taxi trips and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that level of control, I guess, and gave and. Therefore, you're walking a lot and therefore you're on your own a lot. Probably gave a lot of time to think. Mm. It did. And I I guess it was sort of a, a streak of independence, wanting to just spend that time alone. But I also realised that in doing that, uh, I thought, well, look, what I'll do is I'll read the New Testament. This is history. It's going back to the sources as close as I can to this Jesus bloke. You know, So I'll, I'll read it. Obviously, I'd heard stuff in Sunday school growing up and you'd heard the stories, but I'd never actually read through the New Testament. So I thought, okay, this is a good place to start. So in between sleeping in farmer's fields and and having biblical swarms of insects sometimes descending on me when I was doing that, uh, yeah, I was walking around Ireland for three months, essentially reading the New Testament. Yeah, what a great way to immerse yourself with with one topic to, to really get a handle for it. Mm. So you've you've done this. You've walked around Ireland for a, for mm. a period of time. Did you have a revelation, or did this sort of grow on you? I think at the end of the the Irish trip, I'd I'd finished the New Testament, and so I'd got an idea of what the New Testament was claiming. Uh, essentially, Jesus was God's son, rose from the dead, somehow miraculously, and this was a big deal. This was somehow changing things and changing people's lives. So I got that message and then I thought, I can't really say that I saw that growing up very much. On reflection at the time, it seemed like the, the group I'd grown up with was, was more of a social group, a social club. And obviously it was very uh, much a family thing as well. So I think I was a bit nonplussed at that point. I thought, how does this, what I see in the New Testament, relate to what I've experienced so far in, in something that is calling itself a church? And I saw really a disconnect there. Mm. And did you see it as being perhaps now more complex with a lot more depth and a lot more content to the story? Yeah, and I I guess I saw that what we'd done in our group was focus, be a a bit too introspective, I think, and a bit too navel-gazing. It was all about our group and how we were right and other people weren't, and um, we were certainly better than all the other churches. So... You know, the group that I was in really had characteristics more that were in some ways sect-like or cult-like, um, which I realised as I went further on that journey. Very interesting that your spiritual journey took such a radical t- tangent. So you were still in your mid-20s. Fast forward to today. There's been Whoa. Um, a number of generations, a number of yep. decades, and I know that you've pursued the religious history and sure. studies uh, in that time. Yep. In a real nutshell, okay. what was the, that period of time like? So before I fast forward, I just need to touch on one other thing from where I've left the conversation so far. After Ireland, I went to Israel and then into Egypt. And really, I think what happened in Israel was a key thing because I started to meet lots of people in Israel as I travelled around. I was staying in often Christian hostels uh, who did have their lives changed in a sense. I kept meeting these people. You believe Jesus is alive? He's changing your life. He's real. You're... And I could see people making really authentic decisions based on that belief. And that really led me to reprocess what I thought 
And they, then, as you know from the book, had an experience in, in a garden in Jerusalem where, to cut that short, just felt uh, God had moved me to a particular point where he'd, he'd showed himself to be real. And that was the turning point for me. And I felt God, God's reality was there. Uh, God's love was there. And that then became the, the turning point. Another important part of the fast forward here, Tony, would be uh, the second career I've had, which is in fundraising. So that's been in parallel with the academic career. But also, most importantly, my family. So this year I celebrate 35 years of marriage to the gorgeous Deborah, who for some reason accepted me back in uh, August 1985. And uh, we have two delightful adult sons, Joel and Jason. So they're a, a really important part of my fast forward and my life today. So the history thing had always been there for me, the love of history. And so one of the things that happened after I came back, I started going to other churches and, and, and checking them out. Eventually, that's a really interesting way of putting it, checking them out. Well, you've got to understand after what I've been through, I've been through a group I, I thought was completely truthful and believed my family um, and then had to walk away from it. And that meant, you know, I was quite happy to walk away from anything and everything. I could have walked away from any form of belief. But that led me to study theology and go on to do postgraduate work in that. And so for the last Oh, 35 years or so, nearly. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been studying in theology, church history, lecturing in that for 22 years, writing articles, writing books, um, and that's what I've been doing. So in that time, and we'll wind up pretty much around this point, was there anything else in that 35 years that you saw as a bit of a light bulb moment as well? Um, I think that the main light bulb moment for me happened in that garden in Jerusalem. And since then, it's probably fair to say other things were, uh, were lesser, mini, mini light bulbs perhaps, uh, in terms of, of choices and direction. Um, and certainly the choice to head towards lecturing in Bible colleges was one of those. But essentially that moment in, in the garden in Jerusalem in October 1981 was the turning point. Okay, so let, we will just talk a little bit about that. So okay. So those of our listeners who haven't read the book, mm. and I don't want to give too much of the book away, mm. just give us a <clears throat> bit of a, a summary of what happened and also tell us whether that moment, whether you realised that at that time or some weeks or months later you realised that was the moment things changed. Okay. So having spent about six weeks in Israel and meeting lots of people who were saying they believed Jesus was alive, had changed their life, and getting their stories, and then being able to link that back to what I could see the New Testament was saying. <clears throat> this place in Jerusalem is the garden tomb. So it's people don't say it was absolutely the burial place of Christ, but it's a first century tomb, rock tomb. And it's a, a popular place to go. So at that particular moment when I, I visited it for probably the third or fourth time, um, and I, look, I will give a little bit of the book away at this point, there, a number of things took place in that garden that were happening around me. Some of the, um, there were people inside the tomb taking flash photography. There were actually several different gospel choirs around me at the time. And I realised that really... I've got flashbulbs in an empty tomb. I've got three different gospel choirs around me. 
for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you know, there's something called the Day of Pentecost in there. It seemed a little bit like a, a soap opera overkill. And so at that moment, I realized a couple of things. Number one, I think God's got a sense of humor. Another one was I felt really obviously staged manage overkill as part of that sense of humor. Uh, and I felt that really the only person who could have got me to that point uh, was God. In the book, there's a theme of running from commitment ultimately, whether it's commitment in relationships or commitment to something like of a spiritual nature. And so that was a moment at which I decided, well, yeah, I'm prepared to commit to something here because I think God's moving. Peter, thank you very much for adding incredible value to your story. Um, those of you who have our listeners who listened to the first podcast and those who've been lucky enough to read your book will realise that you touched on some of this in the book, but certainly you've gone a fair bit deeper today. So thank you for that. And I think it's a, a really interesting story of how you can stay on the same trajectory but follow a different path and, uh, and how different things in your life can, can, can make things change. Um, I'm fascinated that you made that change at a, such a young age. Um, kudos to you for, for, I guess, having the strength to stop running away and um, facing that commitment. Yeah, got tired of running after a while, Tony. But, uh, look, thanks for having me back on Max's Island. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you back. And um, you never know, there might be a, another opportunity further down the track. I'm sure there's a, a few other stories that we could uh, share with my listeners. So thanks again for being on Max's Island. Cheers, Tony. We spoke on the bus. On the way home from work, he was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur, all work and no play. And how, how had it turned out this way? He told me his plan, a short-term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track. Go it alone, no one to blame.
every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or 